Thank you, Jessica. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chatham Community Church, and uh, for those of whom it applies, happy Father's Day. Uh, glad y'all are here this morning. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, if you are a guest, I see some of you here this morning, whether it's your first time or whether it's been a while since we've seen you, welcome. So glad that you're here. I saw our um, ushers and greeters sort of making sure that people got uh, our, our welcome gifts, but if you happen to have come and we miss getting a welcome gift to you, make sure on the way out uh, you come and say hi. I'll be under the exit sign and, and in the back and be glad to say hi and get you that welcome gift. Um, throughout its three-season run, the show Ted Lasso managed to keep the laughs coming even as it dealt with some very deep and significant uh, human uh, issues. I'm not going to do any spoilers. Don't worry about it, Jared. I was very careful about that as I was preparing it. <laughs> uh, among the themes that come up in the series multiple times over and over again is what to do when people do things that hurt us, uh, what to do when they realize uh, that they've hurt others as well, what to, what to do when we realize we've hurt others. And there's this one scene where this one character is having a hard time processing through a hurt that's been caused to them, having a hard time forgiving, having a hard time even contemplating uh, forgiveness, and understandably so, because the hurt caused was significant. It was almost a betrayal. And another character says to them, I hope that either all of us or none of us are judged by the actions of our weakest moments, but rather the strength we show when and if we're ever given a second chance. I hope that either all of us or none of us are judged by the actions of our weakest moments, but rather the strength we show when and if we're ever given a second chance. And to avoid spoilers, I'm not going to tell you what happens in the aftermath of that, but it's a striking quote. As soon as I heard it, it grabbed my attention. What's striking to me about this statement is that it has something to offer for the people who cause hurt and for the people who are hurt. For the people who cause hurt, for the people who do harm, for the people who make mistakes that have repercussions, it offers them hope. It offers us hope. Hope that we won't be defined by our worst moment. Hope that we might have a chance to get it right again. But it also has something for the people who are affected, the people who are hurt, the people who are wronged. It invites them into something. It invites them into solidarity. It invites them into empathy. It invites them to consider mercy and to consider grace. It doesn't force them to, but it invites them. It's an empowering statement. It's an empowering statement because it says there is something after the hurt. There is something after the mess. There is something after the mistake. There is something after the offense. There is something beyond the messes we make or when we encounter or feel the effects of the messes made by others. And oftentimes in the show, what happens after the mess becomes a signature moment for the characters in the show. During the summer, we're in a series that we've titled Signature Moments. We're making our way through Scripture, looking at key moments in the lives of the women and men whose stories are gathered in the Old and New Testaments. These are key moments in their lives, sometimes that they sought out, sometimes that they didn't seek out, but they encountered it. In those moments, things happened that changed the course of their lives. They transformed them and set the stage for the legacy that they were to leave. And what we're looking to do as we look at these signature moments is to consider whether we might see ourselves in the stories of these people. Perhaps you will recognize a signature moment that you've had and have an aha moment and say, oh, I've had a signature moment like that. Or perhaps 
you may catch a glimpse and a vision and a longing for what a signature moment for you might look like in the future. At the start of the passage that Jessica read, what we have is a king who has inherited a mess and a nation that's in a messy state. But by the end, what's happened in the passage is a series of signature moments. Signature moments that change the course of that king's life, but also change the nation as well. Because the mess is not the end. There can be something after the mess. There can be something beyond. And oftentimes, what happens after the mess can set the stage for our signature moment. Messes are not ancient history, friends. You and I make messes. We hurt people in our lives. We make mistakes. Uh, There are repercussions. And we are not free from feeling the effects of the messes that others make. People hurt us. They betray us. They do wrong. But the mess is not the end. How we respond to a mess we've made or one we've encountered can turn out to be one of those signature moments in our lives. When Josiah ascends to the throne, he's eight years old, and he inherits a mess. That's a hard spot to be in as an eight-year-old, right? The only messes you should be worrying about as an eight-year-old is the mess of Legos you made on the floor, or you spilled your applesauce, or you spilled the dog food because you tried to carry that bag even though you were told that it was too heavy for you to carry that dog food bag. But there you go. It's been decades when Josiah ascends to the throne, decades since anyone in power followed God. The leaders are supposed to set the tone for how the nation behaves. And for decades, king after king has been straying away from God and chasing after the gods of other nations. It's been a long time since anyone's been faithful to God and faithful to God's covenant during their reign. Josiah's father was was such a king that he was murdered two years into his reign by his trusted officials. And then they, in turn, are put to death by the people. So what that means is that as Josiah ascends to the throne, everyone who had any idea about how to run the kingdom is no longer present. Now, they weren't doing a great job of it, so maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing, but still, there is no collective knowledge about how to run things. The nation is chasing after other gods. This is a mess, This is a mess that's far greater than anything an eight-year-old could handle. In fact, I'd say it's almost greater than any mess a 16-year-old could handle. But eight years into his reign, Josiah makes a key choice. In the passage that builds up to the verses that Jessica read for us, it tells us that when he was eight years into his reign, Josiah starts to seek the Lord. Something inside him calls to him, and he starts to seek the Lord. The Lord that maybe he's heard rumors about, maybe he's heard something about, maybe he's seen things that remind him of this God, but he starts to seek the Lord. And as time passes, that leads to other decisions. The verses tell us that as time passes, he first tears down all the altars to other gods. And there are many throughout the kingdom, but he makes it a point to call for those altars to be torn down. He gets rid of the idols that people had, the idols that were maybe in the palace infrastructure. He gets rid of them. 
And slowly but surely, he seeks to purify the land. He seeks to purify the temple. He seeks to repair the parts of the temple that are broken. He seeks to go back to something that was, even though he's not quite sure what it is. Based on what we read, based on what Jessica read for us, he's been doing all these things without a full picture of what it means to follow God, right? It tells us, the passage where it tells us that the law is discovered, rediscovered during Josiah's reign, which means he was doing all these things without a clear picture of what it meant to follow God, what God asked of him. The people had strayed from God for so long that the ways of God had been forgotten, that they had forgotten how to follow God. Can you imagine how long you have to ignore what, has become, what had become tradition for the people, what, had, what they'd been accustomed, what they'd been told over and over again. How long you have to neglect that for it to be collectively forgotten? He didn't have a full picture. Maybe he had glimpses. Maybe he had a sense. But he didn't have a full picture. But that didn't stop Josiah. Once he decided that he was going to seek the Lord, it didn't stop him from trying to do something better in the face of the mess trying to maybe leave something better for whoever came before him than what he inherited when he came into the mess. There's a quote that's attributed to Maya Angelou that says, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. The way that the narrative unfolds, the way that this narrative unfolds just before this passage and even in this passage, that seems like a great summary of what Josiah did. Because he did what he knew. And then when he discovered more things, he did those things. And then when he discovered other avenues and opportunities, he took those other avenues. He took advantage of those other opportunities. He starts by making a commitment to God, a commitment to pursuing God, even though he's not entirely sure what that means. He doesn't know entirely what it entails. He doesn't know what it's going to take. He doesn't know what the next 10 steps are going to be, but he makes the commitment. And when he sees a step, he takes a step. The decision to seek God is what gets this going. That decision, that commitment was a signature moment. We can't always clean up the messes that we make or the messes that we encounter in one fell swoop. In fact, I'd argue that we often can't clean them all up in one fell swoop. But we can take one step. We can do one thing. And there are actions that we take as we clean up messes that can turn out to be signature moments. Actions that we take that can turn out to be signature moments. But there are also signature moments that happen inside of us. There are the signature moments that happen inside of us when we resolve, when we commit, if you want to use more sort of religious language, when we covenant. When we do something inside ourselves that says, I am making a change, I am set on this path. I am set on heading in this direction. Those types of resolutions, those types of commitments aren't useful only to deal with the messes of life. They're useful in all of life. They're useful in all of life. I wonder if for many of us, our next signature moment is actually today. Because the next signature moment for us is to commit to doing the next right thing that's in front of us. And then the one after that. This commitment has power. It can change us. 
It can shape our, our legacy. It can shape what our lives turn out to be. What if today is the signature moment where you resolve, where you commit, where you agree and set your mind to doing the next right thing that's in front of you? And then the one after that. We don't have to have the whole path figured out to take one step. We don't have to know every detail of what it's going to mean to live a good and fruitful life. We don't have to see the whole picture. And we don't have to be extraordinary in the steps that we take, whether initially or ever. We just have to be faithful, committed, resolved, resolute to do the next right thing. And then the one after that, and the one after that. Because if we do that over and over and over again, even when we stray, even when we neglect, even when we forget, if we come back to that commitment, what will happen is that years down the line, in fact, maybe just months down the line, we'll be able to look back. And if there was a mess, we'll see that a dent was put into it. And the mess is either gone or is not as significant as it was before. And as we look at our whole lives, we will see that we will have made a difference for the better. This could be a signature moment for us today, friends. This could be your signature moment. I know it seems too easy. Maybe it seems too simple. Maybe it seems too simplistic, but why does it have to be complicated? Why does it have to be complicated to make a cho- the kind of choice that transforms our lives and shapes our legacy. It doesn't have to be. It can be as simple as this. Perhaps today the invitation for you is to commit to doing the next right thing that's in front of you and then the one after that, and to do that over and over again. Now that doesn't mean, once we commit to that, it doesn't mean that we won't encounter more messes. And it doesn't mean that we won't realize that the messes that we have encountered or the messes that we did make are far greater than we realized at first. Early in the passage that we read, something like that happens to Josiah. The book of the law is discovered. After years of making the next right choice and the next right choice and the one after that, the book of the law is discovered. And when it is read to Josiah, something breaks in him because it becomes clear Not only that there was still a lot to do, but that things were far worse than he realized. Things were far worse than he had knowledge to understand. The people had betrayed their commitment to God in far greater ways that he understood or had appreciated. It can be deflating to have that kind of moment. It can be deflating to have worked slowly and deliberately doing the next right thing in front of you year after year, trying to right the ship only to realize that there's still so much to go, that the problem was so much greater, that the stakes were so much higher. But that's not how Josiah responds. He doesn't become deflated. On the other hand, as someone who has done the right thing over and over again, he could have simply gone straight into reading the law and making the change, be like, all right, all hands on deck. We're just going to keep doing the right thing. Let's kick this into overdrive. The things are bad, but we're going to take care of it. But that's not what Josiah does either. Instead, the passage tells us that Josiah tears his robes. 
And in that culture, that was a sign that among many things included mourning. Josiah hears the scope of the mess. He hears the magnitude of the people straying from their commitment to God, and he mourns. He feels the pain as he gains awareness of how bad the mess is. The show Band of Brothers, based on a true story, follows U.S. Army's Easy Company during World War II. And in one episode, uh, the company comes across and liberates a concentration camp. When they liberate the concentration camp, you look at the folks who are uh, in that concentration camp, who are emaciated, uh, many injured, many uh, frail, of course, many dead already. But in the ones that are still alive, you see relief in their eyes. You see desperation, appropriately so. You see the emotion of what they think is happening as they are being liberated. But it's the faces of the soldiers that I find most striking in these moments because there's something unexpected about it. These soldiers are heroes in this moment, yet you don't see celebration in their faces. You don't see relief in their faces. Now, in some, there's resolve to get work done. In fact, in many of them, they have the medic patch. So clearly, they're seeing people who need assistance, and they are trained to do, and they do what they're trained to do, right? They go into, all right, let's, let's help in whatever way we can. Let's tend to the wounded. Let's get these people back to health. Let's find them food. But in many, there's grief. There's sadness. There's disbelief. Some cry. Some cry because these are horrors they hadn't imagined possible. And that's fairly accurate. The scope of what uh, the Nazis were doing in concentration camps, even the existence of concentration camps, was not widely known or believed. So they are encountering something that they didn't know was possible. And war is messy. They know that. They are hardened. But the mess they encounter in these places was far greater than they had ever imagined. It was far greater than what they were prepared for. And they allow themselves to feel it. In fact, I think at the scale of this, I don't think they could help but feel it. This is what Josiah does, or it's like what Josiah does at the reading of the law. And what it does is it builds in him resolve to do what he does next. Friends, when we make space for grief, when we make space for sadness in response to the messes of life, what we do is we connect with the heart of God. The heart of God that cries out, this is not how it ought to be. It's vulnerable to allow ourselves to feel pain, to feel sadness, to access grief. And in fact, I'd say that we need good boundaries for it because in our world, we are bombarded by messes constantly. There's lots of fear-mongering. There's lots of just invitations into constant states of panic and pain. There needs to be boundaries around it, but there are messes that are relevant to us. There are messes that we can't numb ourselves to. Making space for grief and sadness, and sadness, accessing the heart of God that says this is not how it ought to be, keeps us from numbing ourselves in the places where we are called to care and called to participate. It keeps us from becoming numb to the pain and brokenness in our world. And it also ignites in us a resolve to do what is right, to do the next right thing, 
the one after that, to keep going even if the mess is overwhelming, to do our part to clean up the part of the mess that's in front of us. I wonder if for some of us a signature moment today is to open up our hearts to grief and sadness. Maybe some of us have caused pain in others. We've made messes, but we've not actually allowed ourselves to feel the sadness, to feel the grief of the brokenness that we've caused, the hurt that we've perpetuated, the betrayal that we've uh, impacted others with. Perhaps for some of us, it's to open up our hearts to grief and sadness at the pain that's been brought upon us. Because maybe we've been trained to simply say, well, just, just forgive and forget. Just move on. Just say it's okay when it's not. When it's not. Now, I'm not advising bitterness. I'm not advising retribution. I'm not advising revenge. But tapping the heart of God that says this is not how it ought to be is what propels us into writing relationships into figuring out how to rebuild and reconcile in healthy ways and how to set up boundaries where we need to. Perhaps for some of us, the signature moment today is to feel grief, is to feel sadness. Josiah is feeling that deep remorse. He's feeling that deep grief. He's realized that the mess is far worse than he initially thought. But here's the thing, he's not sure how much worse. He's not sure what's going to happen. He needs help clarifying reality. He needs help assessing the situation. And so he sends some of his advisors to the prophet Huldah. Now, traditionally, there were times when the prophets were known to kings. In fact, they had access. They were part sort of of the royal structure, the, the, the palace system. We see stories where prophets had access to kings, even if the relationship was antagonistic. And there are also stories where the prophets are, have access because they're saying the things the kings want to hear, but they have access to them. God sends prophets to speak to kings because the reasoning is if the king, if he can get through, the, through to the king, if the king makes a change, then the nation will follow. We have an opportunity to make an impact with the whole nation. We don't know what kind of relationship Josiah has with Huldah, but it's not a stretch to say that maybe they didn't know each other. Regardless, it's clear that she has some credibility. She is someone who, can, who is trusted to speak the truth from God. Sending people to her rather than calling for her is a sign of respect to her. It's a way he's saying, I respect what you have to say, and I'm serious about doing something about it. He's serious about wanting to hear, regardless of how bad that might be, and that is a big deal because... Um, Prophets who say things that kings don't want to hear uh, have the potential of not being prophets or people for much longer. But he's serious about this. What she communicates isn't fun. There's no sugarcoating it. But it's clear to Josiah that it's true. And he needed to hear it. He needed to know. We need people like Huldah in our lives. All of us do. We need people who can hold up the mirror and help us see what's going on. We need people who can look out and see beyond what we can perceive. We need people who love us enough to tell us the hard truth when we need to hear it. Seek out 
trustworthy truth-tellers. There is not a single person here that doesn't need one. Seek out, at least one, seek out trustworthy truth-tellers. Now, I'm not talking about doomsayers. I'm not talking about pessimists. And I'm not talking about jerks who enjoy being mean and telling us how much we suck. That's not what I'm talking about. Those are not healthy people. They're the kind of people that know that you don't have to choose between having a good relationship and speaking a hard truth, that you can do both together. We need those people in our lives. If we're going to make the kinds of choices that we need to make to respond to the messes of life, especially when they're bigger than what we imagine, we need clarity on how bad things are. And if applicable, we need clarity on how much we contributed to making things as bad as they are. And we can't always get that on our own because we are practiced and expert in the art of self-deception. And friends, there's a cost when we don't get the truth. Many years ago, I started to preach uh, pretty early on in my walk with Jesus, and people recognized that there was some talent and some gifting in me, and I got lots of opportunities. And I was very young, and I said yes to every opportunity. I had a season where it wasn't strange in my life, and this is in my early 20s, very early. I was still in college. It wasn't strange for me to have three speaking engagements in one week. It was not odd for that to happen. And I was speaking over and over again, rushing from one side of the island to the other, and I preached at this one church, and it was for their, like, their youth group's anniversary. The church was packed, and I preached this sermon, and I could tell that the response in the congregation was not what I thought it should be. And I knew that I was sort of tired and that my prep was not, you know, everything that it should be, but I, I sat down, and at the end of the service, you know, after the service, there was a friend of mine there, someone who was older than me, who I trusted, who was a really good communicator and a close friend, and I went up to him, and I was like, hey, give, give me some feedback about that. Like, tell me what you thought. And he said, well, you know what they say, um, uh, you know, preachers who don't preach long get invited again which I realized later on was his way of saying, at least it wasn't long. But what he could have done, which I suspect he knew, he could have taken me aside and said, hey, listen, that was not great. Tell me about your prep. Tell me about how often you're preaching. He could have said, listen, you're, 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 you're going too hard at it. You need to start to say no to some of these things. You can't actually preach three times a week every week and be a student and be a leader and do all these things but he didn't. Less than a year later, I burned out. I had to take like a six-month break from preaching because I realized not just that the quality of my preaching had grown poor, but my ability to discern what God was saying had, had withered, and I was starting to say what I wanted to say from the pulpit instead of actually accessing the truth of Scripture. It was costly. Friends, we need trustworthy truth-tellers. Seek them out. Let me take it one step further become a trustworthy truth-teller. Be the kind of person who isn't afraid to speak the truth when people seek it. Or when you get permission to share it. Be the kind of person who doesn't just say, oh, no, that's not too bad. Because sometimes people need to hear, listen, I love you. Things are serious. If you don't make some changes, it's going to be more costly than it is now. I'll help you, but it's time. We need those kind of people in our lives, and people need us to be those kinds of people. 
because this is a signature moment for Hulda as well. She is courageous in speaking the hard truth that needed to be heard, and she spoke it in a way that was received, and it opened the door for Josiah to do what he did next. Because even though she said that disaster was coming for the people, she also said why disaster wasn't coming for Josiah or wasn't coming for the people during Josiah's time. She talks about his humility. She talks about his uh, commitment to God. She talks about uh, him hearing and responding to what God said and that causing God to, to relent, that causing God to postpone. And I can imagine the wheels turning in Josiah's head as he's hearing the words from Huldah. And I can imagine him saying to himself something like, well, if I humbled myself, had a responsive heart, and grieved the wrong committed by us and what it caused the Lord... And that caused God to hear me, and it caused God to spare me. What if everyone did that? And that's exactly what he leads the people into. He leads the people in a covenant renewal ceremony. He leads the people in pledging themselves. He leads the people in doing what he had been doing. He leads them in doing that, and disaster doesn't come. And here's what I'd like to propose, because I think he sets a pattern for them. I suggest that if they would have kept on doing them past Josiah's time, and if the king that came after Josiah would have done that as well, disaster wouldn't have come. The Lord would have kept on hearing and would have kept on extending mercy. Josiah heard the word from God. He assessed what he could do in response as a person of influence, and then he took the next step. And then he took the one after that, and he led the people in keeping to this path for all of his reign. He didn't just keep it himself. He led the people in keeping it. Every time we hear the truth, every time we hear God's invitation, there's an opportunity. And it's what I'd like you to consider today. And it could be what unlocks a signature moment like it did for Josiah, a signature moment that transforms your life and shapes your legacy. And here's what it is. Do the next good and faithful thing God invites you to and then the one after that. Moving beyond just doing the right thing, tap into what God's heart is for your life. Access it, listen to it, seek it out, and then say yes to that invitation. And say yes to the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after that. Soon enough, you'll have a signature moment. As we've been going through these signature moments, we talked about, I've talked about at times wanting to hear some of these signature moments. And so we'd like to start today sort of a, a, a response exercise that we're going to carry through the rest of the series. On your seats or under your seats, there are index cards and there are pens either in the seat back in front of you or under your seat if you're in a front row. Um, we'd like to do this in, twofold, in two ways. We're going to do this week after week. I'd like you to write something on the left side of the card, it's your left, my right, and something on the right side of the card, my left, your right. On the left side of your card, I'd like you to write what you see as God's signature in this passage, because our signature moments always come in response to God's signature, to how we see God at work, what we see about the character of God. You can write one or two words, you can write a phrase. Some way, maybe in this passage you see God as the merciful. Maybe you see God as the one who extends invitation. Maybe you see God as the gracious one. What is God's signature in this passage? The one who speaks 
you can write that on the left side of your card. And then on the right side of your card, I want to invite you how you might respond to that signature of God in your life. Now, your response might be similar to Josiah's, though I don't suspect many of us are in a position to lead covenant renewal ceremonies, but maybe you are, bless the Lord. But what would be your response to, to, to God's signature in this passage? You can write that in one or two words on the right side. Maybe you write, to listen, to seek, to humble myself, to grieve. You don't have to write sentences. You don't have to write your name. In fact, uh, just encourage you, you don't have to do that. But write, well, how might you respond? And here's what I'd like you to do. You can do this either during the response song or you can do this on your way out. On the back wall here to my left, we have a, uh, a board that says Signature Moments. And next to that board, there is a table, and that table has uh, tax. I want you to put your index card on that wall, on that wall. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to do some stuff with that over the course of the weeks, and we're going to start to build what God's signature looks like in our lives and in the scriptures and what our response looks like to God's signature. And hopefully in that, we'll continue to help each other recognize those signature moments. So again, on the left side, what God's signature looks like in this passage, and on the right side, how you might respond to God's signature. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that it's not complicated. It's about doing the next right thing and saying yes to the next invitation and then the one after that. Thank you, Lord, that when the mess is great, you are willing and able to speak so that we could see and know what we need to do. Thank you, Lord, for the truth-tellers you've brought into our lives. Thank you for the ways you've used us, Lord, moving forward. May we be people who listen. May we be people who don't see the mess as the end, but an opportunity to respond in ways that lead to signature moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with me?